I think we've got to be open about it and not make it taboo and not be embarrassed about it and be really clear. If you have had a rubbish night's sleep because of it, then share that experience because there'll be lots of other women going through exactly the same thing as me each and every day. Hello and welcome to Stevonomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. If you think about the really big changes coming down the track over the next 20 to 30 years, the ageing of the global population would be high on anyone's list. It could affect the growth rate of our economy, how much we spend, what we spend it on, the kind of jobs that are needed. It could affect pretty much everything, in fact. But one consequence that probably hasn't crossed your radar is that nearly one in four women around the world could be going through the menopause by 2030. Bloomberg economy reporter Lizzie Burden has looked into the economics of that mildly alarming prospect. You'll hear from her in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about another major change we're expecting the global economy to go through, becoming more Chinese. Betting when exactly China overtakes the US as the world's largest economy is a popular pastime among economists. Whether that handover will happen doesn't arouse much debate at all especially not in Beijing, where they've just been celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, and its leaders have been doing their best to present that passing of the baton from the US to China as both imminent and inevitable. The Chinese nation, President Xi Jinping said last week, is marching towards a great rejuvenation at an unstoppable pace. But is it so unstoppable? Is China really destined to take over the world in the near future? Well, Bloomberg's chief economist, Tom Orlick, great friend to Stephanomics, has asked exactly that question in some research with our China economist, Eric Xu, and come up with some interesting answers. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Tell me about this research before we go on to have a broader debate about it. So China has a lot of things in its favour, Stephanie. There's 1.4 billion Chinese people. GDP per capita in China is a fraction of the level in the United States, pointing to substantial space for continued development. And China's leaders have a formidable track record on delivering on their, develop- on their development objectives. So at one level, it seems like a no-brainer that China will inevitably overtake the United States and claim the top spot in the global economic rankings. At the same time, there's a bunch of vulnerabilities and uncertainties, a shrinking working age population, a stalled reform agenda, an overhang of debt, which raises the possibility of a financial crisis, and increasingly the risk of isolation in the global community, slowing the flow of technology and ideas and innovations, which have catalyzed China's development. So what we did in this piece, my colleague Eric Ju and myself, is put some numbers around those risks and identify scenarios from a kind of rapid overtake, which would see China claiming the top spot at the beginning of the 2030s to stall financial crisis and other misfires, which would see China trapped in a perpetual second place. And it did seem, and you do you go through you go through all of these. There are three factors that seemed like the, the sort of three components of the the positive scenario, the things that China would have to get right, or would have to turn out China's way for it to overtake the US economy fairly soon. And I guess th- those three are 
I guess, firstly, how the US does relative to China. If US continues to go like gangbusters in the next few years, one has to assume it's going to be a bit harder for China to overtake. Uh, and this, the second uh, that you also highlight is uh, whether or not the rest of the world makes it easier or harder for China to grow. It's been a very hospitable place, the global trading system, for most of China's recent development. But we know that that's, um, the tide has been turning on that under President Trump, but also under President Biden. And then I guess the third piece is whether how successfully it reforms its economy and deals with those challenges that you highlight, the aging population, um, declining productivity. So I guess maybe just if we could if we could run through each one of those. I mean, firstly, just the, the relative performance of the rest of the world. How how much does that figure in the, the faster scenarios? So there's two areas where the rest of the world can have a big impact on China's development trajectory. The first one is what the US does at home. Biden has a plan for infrastructure. He's got a plan for families, which could significantly increase workforce participation. If these plans turn out to be down payments on a more aggressive development strategy for the United States, we could see the US growing faster than expected over the next 10 years, 20 years. As you mentioned, a faster growing US would obviously be a harder US for China to catch up with and overtake. The second area where the US could have a significant impact on China's trajectory is the sort of set of issues around decoupling. One of the reasons China has grown so fast is because they've been able to tap global markets for technology, for ideas, for innovations. What we're already seeing is the door to global markets for China is starting to swing closed. The US and its allies are taking a hard look at China. They don't like what they see. They don't want to support China's development. They certainly don't want to support China's acquisition of strategically important technologies. So they're making that harder. On the Chinese side, there's a kind of laundry list of reforms which are necessary to boost productivity and to offset the demographic drag. So it's critical for China to continue investing in research and development. It's critical for them to have space for dynamic private sector entrepreneurs. They would love to see fertility move higher. The one-child policy has been a disaster for their demographics and now threatens to crimp the size of their working age population. And at the other end of the age spectrum, they need to raise the pension age to keep workers on the job a bit longer. And if you if we sort of pull that together and just trying to kind of crystallize in our minds what what difference it makes to the to the sort of the in the future for the 10 or 20 year time frame, um, obviously, uh, it's like sticking in a figure in the air. You can't necessarily predict the exact year when China's going to overtake the US, uh, not least because we're talking about the nominal value of GDP here. I know there will be lots of people listening saying, hang on, China's already overtaken um, the US. And that's true when it comes to what they call the purchasing power parity basis. So if you're taking into account the fact that things are cheaper in China than um, the US uh, China's already overtaken it. But if we're just looking, as you are in this piece, if you're looking at the sort of cash value, the nominal value of its economy relative to the US, um, what's the, if everything goes right, what's the fastest you think it could overtake the US or what's the most re- the soonest date? And what is the impact of those factors um, 
progressively going worse for China? Uh, is that is it just that it never overtakes, or it just pushed it into the sort of fifty-year time frame? So, if everything goes right, Stephanie, if ties with the U.S. remain robust, if China can push forward its domestic reform agenda, if China can dodge a financial crisis, if China's GDP data is indeed credible and gives an accurate read on the size of the economy, then we think they could overtake in twenty thirty one. If all of those things go wrong, if ties with the U.S. splinter, if domestic reform fails, if China faces a financial crisis, if the GDP data is exaggerated, then China stays in perpetual second place. Okay, so let let me bring into this conversation the economist and author George Magnus. He's now an associate at the China Center at Oxford University. He's also a former chief economist for UBS, and most importantly for us, he has written extensively about China's economy, including uh, a book in 2018, Red Flags: Why She's China Is in Jeopardy. So, George, uh, thanks very much um, for joining us. I know that some of these questions that Tom's raised in this research uh, definitely are consistent with questions that you've had about China's development and its future. But when we looked at China last year handling COVID, many people thought, "Well, hang on, it, this shows yet again that China is incredibly good at managing very tough challenges and has actually managed to grow in this year where the rest of the global economy shrank." Um, are you feeling? Uh, have you have you changed your view of the chi- of China's prospects as a result of its effective management of COVID, or do you think that Tom's right in this analysis to question it? Uh, well, uh, Stephanie, I mean, I I don't think the pandemic's really, or the sort of management of the pandemic, has really had a material impact on, you know, the sort of the, the fundamental view. Because what what we're really talking about here, I think, is whether China is going to lapse into or succumb to the middle income trap, uh, under which conditions uh, its GDP, at least certainly in per capita terms, will never uh, converge with the United States substantially, may converge a bit, um, but also in which it's the monetary value of its GDP um, may also, as Tom has indicated or suggested, might uh, permanently stay uh, less than it is in the United States. The, the pandemic certainly has had a um, very significant effect in the way in which people kind of evaluate how you deal with a pandemic. I mean, if you can impose draconian suppression using public health measure, measures as the Chinese have done, which are not really, I mean, we've had lockdowns, but not nothing like uh, the kind of um, measures which the Chinese were able to, um, uh, to, to bring about, then, um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's an efficiency if you want to if that's the right word, uh, that you can use about in the way in which you can deal with such problems. But I don't think that really cuts um, any ice with opinion, which is really about, well, you know, they were very efficient in dealing with it when it was a problem and the economy turned around much more quickly than anybody else. But actually, in the wash, we're all going to end up in a a comparable place. I mean, sooner or later, you know, we'll all be vaccinated. Sooner or later, lost output will be regained. Sooner or later, you know, the pandemic, hopefully, will just be kind of um, history. But what we'll be left with is, why was it all so untransparent? Why didn't we hear out, hear about it? Why did they try to suppress information about it? And, um, and, and that, I think, will be the lasting legacy rather than the speed with which they clamp down on, on 
this uh, virus. And you talk about the middle income trap. I mean, I guess the other example is not so much a middle income trap, but of a of a country that we predicted would overtake and then didn't is Japan. And you could say it was the sort of cautionary tale. Do you think there are any any comparisons there? Do you think there's some of the same weaknesses in China's development that have have come through in Japan's case? Yes. In fact, I'd sort of broaden it a little bit. I'd say, you know, think about Japan in the 1980s, think about um, Brazil in the 1970s, the Soviet Union in the 50s and 60s, even Germany in the 1930s. With hindsight, of course, we all know that these were basket cases or that they were making uh, terrible errors in their economic and, and kind of commercial financial policies. But actually, in real time, there was a genuinely felt uh, kind of concern that that they would overtake us. So, you know, Khrushchev said in 1956, history is on our side and we will bury you. Um, I mean, I don't think the Japanese ever said anything quite as aggressive as that, as as far as I can remember. But certainly the Americans were absolutely paranoid that, um, you know, the Japanese would eat their, their commercial and economic lunch and so on and so forth. And these things never happened. And I think the reasons why the why they never actually did happen. I mean, actually, often there is sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other. Sometimes it's a question of uh, just failure of institutions to adapt. Sometimes it's that the the boom periods, which we all um, kind of think are going to go on forever, are founded on much more temporary phenomena than we recognise at the time, like credit or you know commodity prices. In the case of Brazil, I mean. One of my favorite kind of uh, examples nowadays, actually, is to cite in the case of um, the Soviet Union when Gorbachev came to power in 1985. We still thought that uh, at that time that you know Russia was uh, a force, the Soviet Union was a force, but actually income per head and consumption per head in the Soviet Union relative to the so relative to the United States was actually a bit higher than it is in China today. So you know China has the income per head of Malaysia or Russia. But the consumption per head, which is flanked by Jamaica and Iraq, now that's basically there's something fundamentally wrong in the structure of the Chinese economy, because they have this very kind of Leninist view about the significance of production, supply. Um, they're certainly not the enamoured or enlightened view about consumption and service producing industries, which we think are, you know, I mean, we would say that, wouldn't we? Because in, in liberal leaning democracies, it's, it's our leading edge. It's the main thing that we've got. Um, but the, uh, the development model in China, I think everybody agrees, including China's leaders, you know, does need a makeover. It's just that I think, you know, and I'm impressed often when I hear um, privately um, hear Chinese officials talking about why it needs it. But I think the problem is that it's politically really, really difficult for them to agree the kind of governance changes which would be necessary for that shift to happen. Tom, your recent book on China actually had a fairly positive take and at least was was reminding people how effectively China has been able to deal with this leadership, has been able to deal with some pretty big challenges already. And the feeling of your book is that we shouldn't underrate their ability to overcome these challenges. So what would you say back to George on this? Well, I mean, George makes a, makes a you know, surveyed a vast range of uh, economic history and made a number of compelling points. Uh, so there's a lot to agree with there. At the same time, I, I, I take a different view. Um, 
when we think about sort of China in international comparison, um, I think the obvious comparison to make is not with the USSR in 1985 or Brazil in the 1970s um, or Japan in 1989. I think the obvious comparison to make is with Japan and Korea and indeed Taiwan at an earlier stage of their development. China is following the East Asian development model where the state plays a strong guiding role in allocating capital towards achieving development objectives. And we've seen in Korea and Japan and in Taiwan that that development model is a very powerful driver. And in the case of Japan and Korea has lifted those economies pretty close to US levels of GDP per capita. If we think about where China is right now, significantly behind in terms of GDP per capita, but following broadly the same development model, I don't see a compelling reason why they wouldn't be able to continue following that trajectory. George? Um, yes, there is. there are similarities, but I think they are less convincing um, from my point of view than, um, than I think the way Tom um, explains and, and understands it. I mean, the, the reliance on exports is certainly a, a genuine um, comparison, although in China's case, of course, the export orientation of the economy is now, and has been since 2008, 2009, now playing second fiddle by a long chalk, really, to investment. And the first kind of difference then is that the investment share of GDP in China is higher than any of those countries ever achieved, at least uh, perhaps maybe for no more than uh, perhaps they were for a year or two. But um, China has, I think, uh, taken this kind of investment model too extreme and is finding it really difficult to wean itself off it. Uh, the second thing is that these countries, the tiger economies in Japan, all indulged in political reform and saw the necessity for institutional and political change to uh, enable structural change in the economy to take place. Third difference is the demography. Um, so when the tiger economies, by and large, had China's income per head, they were able to look forward um, for some time to a continuous rise in the working age population. China can't do that anymore. Its um, dem demography basically turned around in 2012, and we, we know that it will now relentlessly um, uh, deteriorate, so to speak, until, well, for the foreseeable future. And then last but not least is the idea about liberalizing economic reform. We know that uh, from China's uh, past in the last 30 or 40 years, its highest productivity uh, periods were those that were associated with the liberalizing economic reform, which the pragmatic elements of the Communist Party were quite happy to embark on. And I think my issue really with Tom's suggestion is that in 2012, everything changed with Xi Jinping coming to power. Um, and I think that appetite for liberalizing economic reform and pragmatism has basically gone out the window now, I mean, to all intents and purposes. And so I don't really have very, very high confidence. I think it would be churlish for me to say they can't do it because it's a data-driven economy, as we all are, information-driven. We've got new metrics along, according to which to, to try to evaluate economic performance. But I think that the departures or the dissimilarities now between contemporary China and the tiger economies in Japan are now much more impressive than the similarities, I would say. 
I'm perplexed at the idea that China's investment is a source of weakness. Clearly, China's investment is overdone. There is overcapacity in industry, in real estate, in infrastructure. At the same time, it's the capacity of the government to amass funds for investment and then implement that investment in a strategic way that's actually been the main lever for lifting China from a backwards agrarian economy at the end of the 1970s to a middle-income economy today. So I would actually put strong investment in the kind of success part of the equation rather than the failure part of the equation. On the idea that there's been a kind of a radical shift or a failure in China from 2012 on, well, I certainly agree that China has moved onto a different trajectory from 2012 on, but the idea that there's been a kind of a, a wholesale failure of economic management or financial management or reform, I, I don't actually agree with. Um, if we think about the period from 2012 on, we've had the completion of interest rate liberalization, the completion of exchange rate liberalization, the supply side reform agenda, which closed down significant amounts of overcapacity in industry and dealt with overcapacity in real estate. And we've had the rise of tech giants like Tencent, Alibaba, and Meituan. So certainly China is diverging from a kind of Western Washington consensus path over the course of the last decade. Um, but is China kind of failing in a kind of economic governance sense? I, I would I would not agree with that assessment. We're going to get come to an end, but I wanted I'm interested hearing both of you whether you think ultimately the biggest threat to China's future supremacy, if you like, is going to be inside or outside its borders. Because clearly, as George has just said, you know, the, the leadership has changed uh, and has perhaps become more authoritarian and certainly more, more into uh, centralised control over the last few years. And that, one could say, does pose a threat to their ability to reform in the future. And the world has become a less hospitable place. So I just wondered, I mean, maybe you first, Tom, which you think is ultimately the bigger threat, outside or inside? Um, there are risks in both directions. But I think we probably overstate China's kind of dependence or risk from foreign forces. I think probably China's own government kind of pays too much attention to that. I think China's biggest policy failings from the Great Leap Forward to the Cultural Revolution to the one-child policy, which is now hammering their demographic trajectory, those biggest reform failings have all come from close to home. And I think that's where the biggest risks are going forward as well. George, last word. Yeah, I think I think we agree on that, at least. Um, I mean, I think the external environment is going to be a factor which it has not been since the 1950s and 1960s. I mean, China does still have huge dependency on semiconductors. You, I mean, how do you have advanced technologies in the 2020s and the 2030s if you are so far behind in terms of advanced and um, high-end uh, semiconductors and integrated circuits? And I think, you know, the United States and liberal-leaning democracies are going to make it harder for China uh, to compete in these areas. And um, I think that is a factor which we can't really quantify. But I do agree that to the extent that there's a, a threat to, to China's you know, GDP trajectory, its middle income um, uh, 
status and so on and so forth. I think it, it is internal. And I think it's for the very reason that Tom just denied. I mean, I don't really see any evidence of, uh, I mean, I see evidence of change. And I see evidence that um, Xi Jinping government are trying to do things um, that are important in terms of, um, you know, reducing inequality and maintaining employment and all these kinds of things. But actually, um, I think they keep on running up against a brick wall, actually, and it's not really been very successful. So these are the early days, I think, of governance weakness and, and how totalitarian um, um, governance systems basically fail to deal with fundamental economic problems. Um, I just think they're going to get worse. So internally, I think the biggest threat lies there. Yeah. George Magnus, Tom Orlick, thank you very much. Now, the menopause doesn't get talked about much in polite company, or even in impolite company for that matter. But women of a certain age are leaving the workforce in rising numbers, just when we might have wanted older women to make a bigger contribution. That's led some senior business leaders to say we need to break that taboo and start talking about what the menopause means for women and for the economy. Here's Lizzie Burden. It's not every day that a FTSE 100 boss tells you about her nightly hot flashes. But for 45-year-old Liv Garfield, chief executive of British water services provider Seven Trent, sharing her own experience is an important way of breaking down stigma around menopause in the workplace. I think we've got to be open about it and not make it taboo and not be embarrassed about it and be really clear. If you have had a rubbish night's sleep because of it, then share that experience because there'll be lots of other women going through exactly the same thing as me each and every day. About a quarter of the world's female population will be menopausal by 2030. However, many will suffer in silence, feeling uncomfortable disclosing symptoms to a male or younger manager. And unlike pregnancy, menopause isn't commonplace in HR policy. Symptoms negatively affect three in five women at work, according to research by the London-based CIPD, the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. They can include hot flashes, night sweats, loss of sleep and mood swings, leading to embarrassing episodes in front of colleagues, reduced ability to concentrate and erratic behaviour. Some women will have no issues. For others, menopause can be debilitating. Scores of women will even leave the workforce. A survey by healthcare group Booper reckoned almost a million UK women had quit their jobs because of menopausal symptoms. This has an economic cost. I spoke to Open University Professor Joe Brewis, one of the authors of a 2017 UK government report on the issue. She notes that the biggest gap in gender pay in the UK is between men and women in their 50s. There's very strong evidence that that widening at that particular point is because women are leaving work. And best guesses, a lot of that will, will have to do with menopause. And then that, that gender pay gap, the fact that it's so big between men and women in their 50s, also feeds into a gender pension gap um, later in life, which at the moment is in excess of 40%. Globally, consulting firm Frost & Sullivan estimates that menopause-related productivity losses added to associated healthcare costs amount to more than $810 billion a year. Some companies are taking action. 
back to Liv Garfield at Seven Trent. It's 2017-2018 where we introduced menopause training for all managers. We went right across the workforce and talked about what would make it feel a bit less awkward to talk about. And we kind of realised that if you bring stuff up at least once a week, then it becomes less taboo. So since then, what we've done is realised that you need this almost like adjustment passport. So just again, almost like a like a mini ability to contract with your line manager to say, this is the help that I need. I asked the CIPD's Rachel Suff what practical steps this could involve. For instance, it could be as simple as having fans, opening the window, having good ventilation, good, uh, good access to washrooms, allowing people to take comfort breaks whenever they need them. Flexibility is really important as well. Garfield says the benefits go beyond the financial. So I think the best organisations are made up of diversity, whether it's diversity of age, of thought and of experience. To miss, to not employ swathes of women in their 45s to 60s has got to be a real issue, hasn't it? Because otherwise you're missing all of that insight from that particular generational category. Deborah Garlick, founder of Henpicked Menopause in the Workplace, which offers training on the issue, says change is underway. The UK is ahead of the rest of the world, we believe. Um, We know that from a standing start of five years ago when there was absolutely nothing in the UK, we've made great progress. Menopause has even landed on the Bank of England's radar. Governor Andrew Bailey said in April that although previously not considered part of the world of work, menopause can no longer be ignored. Still, the pandemic and successive lockdowns have kicked menopause down the agenda at many corporations, while also creating some new challenges for female workers. For some women, working from home has enabled them to manage their symptoms better. For others, the uncertainty has exacerbated the psychological side. In female-dominated, public-facing roles, Brewis says those suffering hot flashes have faced an added burden. But also, because of the very poor supply of PPE, Um, Very often women were having to wear PPE that didn't fit them. So drowning in masks, um, head coverings that are designed for men. Economically, research by the Resolution Foundation shows the pandemic's had a worse impact on older working women than any other major crisis since the 1980s. But Garfield is hopeful. So there's no doubt that for some sectors it is a game of survival and that the best thing they can do right now to look after their workforce is to get their business back up and running and able to provide jobs. So that's fair when you're in that mode for some sectors. I think there are other sectors which the power of people has become their greatest asset. And this is around protecting people, isn't it? Which is they're your greatest asset. This is the opportunity to truly push on to another gear. So that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. Tom Orlick will be in the chair next week while I take a week off. In the meantime, please rate the programme and follow at Economics on Twitter for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen with special thanks to Tom Orlick, George Magnus and Lizzie Burden. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Listener.